Beloved, I remember when I started seminary, when I took my first Greek class, uh, that was the semester they had transitioned from Machen's Greek grammar to uh, Wallace's Greek grammar. J. Gresham Machen is a very well-known, brilliant Greek New Testament scholar from the early 21st century. He's well-known for that. He's also well-known because he was one of the early 21st century defenders of orthodox faith against the poison and the encroachment of theological liberalism. In fact, in 1936, the Presbyterian churches of USA suspended Machen from the ministry. And why did they do that? Why did, why did they suspend him? And the reason they suspended him was because of his concern over the encroachment, again, of theological liberalism. He formed a separate independent foreign missions board, and that was the act that got him suspended by the denomination that he was connected with. And we might ask the question, why was he such an ardent defender of the truth? Now, to be sure, any godly man, any godly woman will have a great concern for the truth. But from a human level, to get a little bit of a better understanding, we have to go back to a beginning period of his life, which he called, in his own words, a long and bitter experience. He had a severe intellectual and spiritual crisis that, according to Bacon's testimony, uh, lasted some 10 years. Uh, he grew up in a devout home, devout Christian home, that encouraged education. J. Gresham Machen graduated from John Hopkins University in 1901. He was encouraged by his pastor at the time to go on to seminary, so he went to Princeton Seminary. After he completed that, he went over to Europe and studied in Germany and came under the influence of the liberal theology of some of what some people say, and I say this in quotes, the greatest liberal theologians and scholars. A little bit of an oxymoron there to be sure. But he came under the influence of a particular man named Wilhelm Hermann. And one thing that Machen understood at the time was that there was a sharp distinction between biblical orthodox Christianity and this liberal theology that he was being exposed to. And the question was, he wasn't sure where he was going to land. All this pointing the fact that, again, God keeps those who are his own. But from a human level, what was it that tethered Machen to the truth? And the answer is this. While he was in Germany under the influence of Wilhelm Hermann and other liberal theologians, he was in regular, continuous, weekly correspondence with his godly mother. Beloved, the point, do not ever underestimate the power of a godly mother. In our Mentally frothy culture that we live in, people talk about influencers through various social media. There's no greater true influencer than a godly mother, and that is actually how our passage opens up by way of an illustration from the Lord, and then God even wraps it up with the influence of a godly father. We understand that there is no one who sacrifices more than a mother for her child. It's a calling that demands continual affectionate care, tears, fears, through tears, fears, floods, and failures, Com comforting and caring through the night, night and day. We can consider a biblical illustration here in Thessalonians. Please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here in Thessalonians, we are reading of a church that was birthed by God, of course, but from a human standpoint by Paul and Silas and Timothy. 
And Timothy, when Paul wrote to Timothy, his second letter in 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul said this to young Timothy. He said, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm sure it's in you as well. What the Apostle Paul appealed to there was the spiritual legacy that was bequeathed to Timothy by his godly mother and his godly grandmother. Beloved, what God does here at the beginning of our passage, he opens up with the gentle care of a mother, and then he wraps up our passage. Our passage is chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. He wraps up the passage with the strong authority and the caring instruction of a father. And these are two illustrations, and this is not something that is unique and new even to the New Testament. God used these illustrations himself in the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah 66, verse 13, God says through the prophet, As one whom his mother comforts you, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Or in Psalm 103, verse 13, God says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So, beloved, what we have in Scripture and what we have in particular here in second, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 through 12, is a picture of provision and protection. Uh, the passage begins in verse 7, but I'll begin reading in verse 1 because verses 1 through 12 is really a whole statement, a whole thought from the pen of the apostle. This is the word of God. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we have never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father with his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please <clears throat> attend to it as such. Now, 
You may remember that in chapter 1, Paul was thanking the Lord for the fact that this new church, this relatively young church, was a model church. It was the only church that Paul cited as an example to the whole world, to those in Macedonia, those in Achaia, those in what is now northern Greece and southern Greece. So we had a model church in chapter 1. What we have here in verses 1 through 12 is a model shepherd. Verses 7 through 12 is a model shepherd part 2. And what we have in these six verses are three marks of a model shepherd. A model shepherd is marked by caring love, devoted discipline, and a noble purpose. And when you come to a passage like this, I was having fellowship with uh, Pastor David uh, Lupinetti around this passage and discussing how do you apply a passage like this because Paul is citing himself as an example and to be sure there's great application for any man that is blessed to be a shepherd of the flock of God among them. There's also an application for all members of a church, all Christians who need to be part of a local church to identify and understand what a biblical shepherd looks like. But there's another layer as well. It's multi-layered, multi-faceted. This is what faithful ministry looks like at any level for a godly mother, a godly father, anyone that has anyone that is under the blessing or to have the blessing of having under them under the purview of their influence. So this would speak to. And so, beloved, let us take a look at the first mark of a model shepherd. Namely, he is one who is marked by caring love. And what we have here is God uses the sacrificial role of a mother to frame pastoral ministry. And the model shepherd in verse 7 cares for a sheep gently. And in verse 8, he loves his sheep passionately. He cares for his sheep gently. We see this with the opening illustration here in verse 7. Look at the text. He says, but we prove to be gentle among you. This is an emphatic contrast. If you heard last week, you'll remember that God gives us an outline of the opening 12 verses here where we have this threefold contrast where in verse 1 he opens up by saying, for you yourselves know, brethren, our coming to you is not in vain. Verse 2, but, and he goes on from there. So verses 1 and 2, there's a four, then there's a contrast, but. Verses 3 and 4, Four and but. And then verse 5, there's another four. And then verse 7 is the contrast. And the immediate text that preceded was where Paul says at the end of verse 6 that even though we, as apostles of Christ, had the right, the ability to exert our authority as apostles, but, here's the contrast, we proved gentle among you. We proved to be gentle among you. And the word among you, literally, we prove to be gentle in your midst. And beloved, that is such a key element. The role of a biblical shepherd is not from on high. It's not from some rarefied atmosphere. Biblical shepherds are among the sheep. They know the sheep and the sheep know them. And there's a flavored picture we can get of this dynamic back in Luke chapter 2. You may remember at the end of Luke chapter 2, uh, Luke records the time when Jesus was 12 years old and he was with Joseph and Mary. And Joseph and Mary left on a caravan away from Jerusalem and they were out and then they realized that Jesus wasn't with them. And so they went back, I'm sure, with some kind of frantic nature in their heart and they were searching through Jeru Jerusalem trying to find him. And this is what it says in verse 46 of Luke chapter 2. 
After three days, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, sitting among the teachers, the same picture there, both listening to them and asking them questions. So put a little mental placeholder there. We'll pick that up later when we get to the second illustration of the father. But the idea here is the shepherd has to be in the midst among the people. What it means to be gentle among you means that a shepherd is approachable. He's easy to speak to. He's kind in his dealings. To be sure, he is firm in his dealings when needed, but he is kind. And sometimes, I love this illustration or this application that sometimes the very best ministry is just a ministry of silence, of just being there, of letting the person know that you love them, you're praying for them, perhaps audibly, perhaps quietly, the ministry of silent presence. I can think of Job and his three friends, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who came and sat with him. They also ripped their garments. They also put ashes. And for seven days and seven nights, at the end of Job chapter 2, they sat with Job in silence. And then, of course, when they started speaking, their ministry uh, went down the tube. But that's a different <laughs> topic. Beloved, he continues the illustration. We prove to be gentle among you, the end of verse 7, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Is there a more precious, more gentle picture of the kind of love and tender affection as a nursing mother? And even the Greek word translated tenderly cares literally means to warm with body heat. They use the same Greek word in Deuteronomy 22 and Job 39 to describe how a mother hen or a mother ostrich would bring their babies into them and warm them with body heat. Uh, the word came to mean to cherish with tender love and affection. In fact, this Greek word only appears twice in the New Testament here in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and in Ephesians 5, verse 29, where God is instructing the husbands to love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Because, verse 29, he says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. That's the kind of gentle, caring love that a shepherd must have for his sheep. And by the way, beloved, we have here in verse 7 a picture of femininity. In uh, verse 11 and 12, verse 11, we have a picture of masculinity. Understand this. This picture of femininity here is a reflection of divinity. And now, hang with me. In Scripture, male and female, he made them in his own image. In Scripture, God is described with masculine pronouns. He is described as father. He is the father, not the mother. He is a he, not a she. But male and female, he created them in his own image. And this snapshot of biblical femininity reflects the divinity, the caring, tender love of the almighty created God of the universe. So, a model shepherd cares for his sheep gently. A model shepherd, in verse 8, loves his sheep passionately. Love is the first fundamental of any ministry. It's a first fundamental dynamic of what it even means to be in Christ. How will the world know that you love Christ? Because you love your brother, you love your sister. In verse 8, look at what he says. Having thus a fond affection for you having thus a desirous yearning for you, a longing for. Beloved, this kind of 
fond affection, this kind of love here, this is a love where your heart yearns for the best interest. The model shepherd yearns for the good of his people. He loves them. And even at the end of verse 8, he says, because you had become very dear to us. Literally, you had become beloved to us, is what he says. To maybe get a picture of this, if you're a parent, have you ever lost a child? And, and I don't mean the, the tragic horror of losing your child, you know, of going to eternity. But have you ever lost a child where you don't know where he or she is at and they could be in mortal danger? I remember when I got a frantic call from my beloved Margie when we were in Southern California. And she was in a department store and all of a sudden she lost Zachary. She couldn't be found. Other mothers that were there were around, started helping her, trying to find, they were calling. And as time went on, she grew more and more concern and the end of the story is if, if you know my my wonderful son Zachary he is very focused and they found him hiding under a table right by where they're at now he was purposed in his mind that I'm, I'm going to hide here regardless of what I hear on the outside uh, <laughs> or I remember when we were some years later when we were on the uh, uh, in a beach in New Jersey and uh, my wonderful young son, Jaden, all of a sudden couldn't find him either. And Marge and I were searching for him and time went on. This is at the beach. And I remember just the, the heart wrench I had because I was walking on the one hand, looking out in the waves, just terrified I might see the little dark head, you know, bobbing in the, wa in the uh, waves. And then he, I was even going under docks, hoping that no evil person, you get the whole picture here. And in both these cases, very happy endings, but the point is powerful, powerful feeling. That's the kind of dynamic the Apostle Paul is bringing out here, this foundational ingredient to ministering to your people. Listen up, everyone, whomever they might be, whether it's a flock, whether it's your children, this is a foundational ingredient to ministering to them, this caring love, this passionate love. And there's an irony in Paul's words. Because remember, there is a backdrop. The reason why Paul is having to bring out and point the Thessalonians to what they know about his ministry and Silas and Timothy as well is false accusations had come. And so there's irony in his words because he's in essence saying, you know, those who slander us, they said that we're out to get you. And in a way, they're right. We are out for you, but... We are not out to take something from you. We are out to give something to you, to share something with you. And Paul did have the positional authority of an apostle. Again, remember this contrast. The strong contrast here was the apostolic authority that he had that he cited at the end of verse 6. And when you have positional authority, there is a time to basically say, thus saith the mother, thus saith the father. If you're a parent and you have children, there are times when you tell your children to do something, your child to do something, and they say, why? You need to, every now and then, say, it doesn't matter why. You do it because I told you to. Of course, many times you do explain, but there is a time to invoke positional authority. But the point here with the Apostle Paul, a model shepherd understands that the power of positional authority is not as strong as the power of relational ministry. Positional authority comes from the Lord. Relational ministry is something we are blessed to have and build up and blossom and nurture by virtue of the work of the Spirit in us. That's why he says, look at the end of verse 8. We were well pleased to impart to you, to literally share with you, 
not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. You see, Paul was not like the charlatans who are in it for the prestige and the profit. The charlatans, the enemies of the gospel that had driven them out of Thessalonica and then even followed them up to Berea and stirred up trouble there. He wasn't like them. They weren't charlatans. Paul and company weren't charlatans. They were shepherds. Watch this. They weren't getters. They were givers. And that is what Paul is bringing out. And it's the same dynamic. Paul is writing here to this mature, young, but mature church in Thessalonica. When Paul was writing to the immature church in Corinth, uh, Thessalonica is in Macedonia, Corinth is in Achaia. When he's writing to them in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Beloved, that is the heart of the shepherd. And now even expanding more on this illustration of the tender care and love of a mother and this ministry, this is not daycare. This is not daycare. This is you sharing with them spiritually and sharing with them personally. This means you give them a part of yourself. And this is where people who share their souls, the gospel flourishes. When the shepherds share their souls, the gospel flourishes. And when the shepherds share their souls, the people share their souls with one another. And again, the gospel flourishes. Alistair Begg, I like this statement. He said, truth is hard if not softened by love. Love is soft if not hardened by truth. Both are necessary. And that's why a model shepherd shares spiritually and shares personally. He shares spiritually the gospel of God. That's what it says. And he shares personally. He says, we were well pleased to share with you the gospel of God and also our own lives, literally our own souls. This is a love that is spent in unselfish sacrifice of an entire life. Historically speaking, uh, most of you know, some of you may not know this, but the Apostle Paul was giving his life to those that were under his care. And the Apostle Paul did give his life, literally gave his life. Even when he wrote that second letter to Timothy, he was waiting his imminent execution from a Roman prison. And beloved, this is a first fundamental element of what it means to be a Christian. We are not saved, mark this, you're not saved because of your love, but your salvation is demonstrated through your love. That's why the Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3, 14, we know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. So caring love is the first mark of a model shepherd. The second mark of a model shepherd is devoted discipline. This is in verses 9 and 10. And to kind of segue as we branch from the first mark to the second mark, we can ask the question, okay, how do we identify that caring love? How do you identify a model shepherd? And Paul answers it here. You identify it by his dedication and by his devotion. Watch this. You identify it by the fidelity of his labor and by the fidelity of his life. At Verse 9 at the beginning, he says, For you recall, brethren. This is the fourth time, or I should say four times in verses 1 through 12, Paul calls the Thessalonians themselves. In fact, they use emphatic. He says, you yourselves, you Thessalonians, recall, you know this. So four times he calls them to the stand. Twice he calls God as witness in these 12 verses. 
And what this is, I briefly mentioned this before, this is an apologia. This is a necessary defense. Paul detested having to defend himself, but he would do it for the sake of the gospel. He would do it for the cause of Christ. Not out of pride, not for personal gain, but for the sake of the ministry. And it's because he knows that lies, mistruths, and half-truths travel faster than truth. He understands that gossip spreads more rapidly than healthy discourse. So that's why, even though he doesn't like to do this, he points to himself. He points to he and his companions as an example because of what they know, because of what they saw. You see, Paul's ministry in Thessalonica had been public. It was exercised in the open before God and man. So what he's saying is, you yourselves know our dedication and you know our devotion. So you identify a model shepherd by his dedication. What he's saying in verse 9 is that a model shepherd sacrificially sweats for his flock. True ministry, beloved, true ministry is hard work. It is a product of hard labor. Look at what he says. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, our kapon kai makthon. This is the effort and the pain, the weariness and the hardship. Uh, to maybe help you understand, he's, we could translate it this way. For you yourselves know our toil and our trouble for you. The point is, there is a sweat equity that is demanded in ministry. Certainly the ministry of a shepherd, but again, this applies to faithful ministry at all levels. There's a sweat equity involved in true ministry. He continues on, how we were working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. This describes the around-the-clock diligence demanded of a shepherd. This points to the fact that tent-making Paul and Silas and Timothy deliberately, even though a minister, even though an apostle of Christ, even though a shepherd has a right to receive a living, to receive an income for the ministry, they deliberately release that, forsake that. Same dynamic that he talks about in the second letter, in 2 Thessalonians 3.8. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Uh, Hebert, excellent commentator, said this about this dynamic. And by the way, before I read the quote, when he talks about working day and night, do you think the Apostle Paul compartmentalized and said, well, this is my job, but this is my ministry? No, you don't compartmentalize those. They're all interwoven together. And surely the Apostle Paul, while he was working and bringing blood to his hands and working with his sweat, making leather, making tents. He was surely evangelizing co-workers, and surely people, some of the new Christians were coming, and while he was working, he was shepherding and encouraging them on. But this is what Hebert has to say about this dynamic with the Apostle Paul. Quote, This practice of earning his own living enabled Paul to maintain a position of complete independence in dealing with his people. He was sensitive on this matter of remaining financially independent. It allowed him not only to maintain a dignified independence as a preacher of the gospel, but also to refute any suspicion of mercenary motives for preaching, end quote. And by the way, the Apostle Paul did the same thing in Thessalonica as he did in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9, 
Paul says, in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and I will continue to do so. So, as an apostle of Christ, back in verse 6, he had the burden of being an apostle. He had the burden of being a shepherd, but he didn't place that burden on them. He didn't throw the weight around. What he's saying here, kind of summarizing this at this point, what he's saying to the church is, we weren't a burden to you. Rather, we sought to ease your burden, as a loving shepherd would. So, can we unpack this a little bit more? Can we peel the onion back a little bit? What does this look like? How do we know someone really is a shepherd? Beloved, the model shepherd displays his commitment, first of all, to the word of God, then to the people of God. He's committed to truth, and he's committed to love. And biblical Christian ministry is never, ever, ever a matter of popular appeal. Ministry is not always easy, it's not always accepted. It's not always welcomed. That's why at times, very often, it requires the bold courage that he spoke of earlier. And there's a ephemeral nature. There's a nebulous nature to the accusations that come. I mean, over the years, I remember after I graduated from seminary, when I was on senior staff at Grace Community Church, I would uh, man the pastoral dial-in number, and you would hear complaints about pastors, or people, and I, over the years, even when I was doing time on the East Coast, I mean, when I was ministering on the East Coast, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> you know, and all the way through, you'll, you'll hear complaints about that pastor, well, he's not qualified, well, wh- well he's prideful, uh, okay, he, he doesn't care about me, well, well, how do you know that? Well, he forgets my name. I mean, the point is, they're nebulous, they're ephemeral, they're non-quantifiable, they're fuzzy. So what does Paul say here? How does he quantify it? You understand a shepherd, again, by the fidelity of what he teaches and the fidelity of how he lives. That is the mark of a shepherd of God. And the fidelity of what he teaches, look at verse 9. He says, at the end, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. The point is, we are not ministers who fleece the flock. We are ministers who seek to feed the flock. And the word proclaim, it's not the normal word for preaching. This particular word marks out the dignity of the ministry, of the proclamation of the word of God. It describes the role of a faithful herald, of an official message with authority. This is an arousing word. This is an awakening word. This is a chilling word from this herald. It is a searching word. And that is how you know if a shepherd loves you. You see, it's very easy to assume that a shepherd doesn't feed me because he doesn't doesn't meet my felt need. Beloved, the day that you discover that your shepherd doesn't love you anymore is the day he stops studying his Bible in order to explain it to you, in order to give it to you. That's the day that you know he doesn't love you anymore. That's why, for those of us that are blessed to have any teaching ministry at Santan Bible Church from the pulpit, in our Sunday schools, in the men's ministry, in college ministry and youth ministry all in the children's ministry any ministry of the word that's why we read it we keep it we study it we expound it we apply it and we obey it john stott said this quote every authentic christian ministry every authentic christian ministry begins here with the conviction that we've been called to handle god's words as its guardians and heralds 
We must not be satisfied with rumors of God as a substitute for good news from God. So, beloved, you identify a model shepherd by his dedication. Secondly, you identify a model shepherd by his devotion. We see this in verse 10. And what the Apostle Paul says here is he goes from what we have in our versions here, verse 9 to verse 10, he's saying, I don't merely work hard for you. I let you see inside of me. Paul lays his heart out on the table for everybody to look at. He presents his life, which was laid bare before them, and now, even in the writing of this letter, he lays out his heart, which is now, he presents his heart, which is now open to them. And even if you think of the living letter, my living letter is my beautiful children. My living letter of my life is my beloved Santan Bible Church. And he says, look at verse 10, you are witnesses and so is the Lord. This is the one verse where he brings together the four times calling the Thessalonians themselves to the witness stand. God twice, he brings them together here, the human witness and the divine witness. Your witnesses, so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. I'll just mark one of those words, devoutly, literally unpolluted. This means a life, a manner of life that is unpolluted, not a perfect manner of life. None of us will have a perfect life until we enter into glory. But by God's grace and mercy with the enabling power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can have a holy life, an unpolluted life. This is the same holiness, the same unpolluted nature. 1 Timothy 2.8, by way of illustration, Paul told Timothy to have, I want, that uh, I want men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands, lifting up unpolluted hands. Same word here. Devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly. Holy lives, righteous lives, and blameless lives. Beloved, this is the pastoral team's message of life, and this is the pastoral team's manner of life. Their ministry was above board. It was accurate, it was authentic, and it was approved by God. Their message was true, their motives pure, and their methods honest. There was no trickery, no impurity, no flattery, no hypocrisy. And the same thing for the Apostle Paul was the case again with the an immature church in Corinth. Second Corinthians 1.12, Paul says, Our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, we've conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. We could wrap it up and put it this way. They, when we think of the gospel of God, they believed it and they behaved it. Both are necessary. And the word behaved, it's, it's fascinating. The, the, it uses this Greek tense, and basically what the picture is, the Greek tense, it means undefined. It literally means without horizon. And what, what he's saying here is our life is that that time we were with you, those several weeks we were with you, you have all these snapshots of what our life was like. And when you compile those together, there's this collective testimony that comes out. When, I mean, what do you call a collection of photographs, a collage, a montage. What if you call the collection of photos frames? You get the point. It's a video. 
What Paul is saying is the way we behave to you, there are individual events, there are moments, there are moments in time passing by. And when you put that all together, just like the beautiful video we saw at the beginning of the wonderful work God is doing in Albania, the Apostle Paul is saying our several weeks with you, that's the video of our life. Over the measure of time we were in our midst, you have this collection of snapshots into our life. He's saying it was punctuated and proven it was continual, and it was confirmed. And there was actually a lot more Greek uh, in there that I kind of spared you from, but if you're one of those Greek students we have here, I'd love to come up. And by the way, if in your mind, you had, I'll just bear with me for a second. In your mind, if you think aorist means punctiliar once in the time past, by definition, you need to erase that and put some new data in there, which I'd be happy to, help, happy to uh, do that. Back on task. You can put the glaze off your eyes and come back in. And by the way, that's the same language we became as we proved to be gentle in your midst. You had become beloved to us. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. The same idea of this collection of picture of events through that time. And again, how ironic when we think of the reason for this. The enemies of the gospel, the ones who had driven them out of Thessalonica and followed them all the way up and stirred trouble in Berea, the enemies of the gospel meant these accusations for evil, but God used it for good. That's why we have this passage before us. But how ironic that Paul was accused of greedy selfishness when he lived his life and taught his truth in exact opposition to it. And by the way, Paul did not take his direction from the response he received, whether it was positive or whether it was negative, whether it was compliment or whether it was complaint. Paul took his direction from the fidelity of the truth he taught and the fidelity of the life he lived by the grace and mercy of God, for the glory of God, not for the glory of self. And beloved, this is how you identify a model shepherd. He is marked by caring love. He's marked by devoted discipline. The third mark of a model shepherd is his noble purpose. In verse 11, first the Apostle Paul gives the second illustration. He gives the Father's example. The Father's example to live the life, to set the example and to instruct the child. He says, just as you know, again, appealing to the witness, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, encouraging, consoling, imploring, literally witnessing, testifying to you, he continues on, as a father would his very own children. Beloved, dear friend, if you're here this morning from human experience, you understand that the way a young man walks is largely driven by how his father walks. The way a young man talks is largely driven by how his father talks. That's why we, if we are blessed, if you're a man that's blessed to be a father, we need to be encouraging rather than goading. We need to be comforting rather than aggravating. We need to have a compassionate, we need to be compassionately bringing along rather than cajoling and reprimanding. It is a high calling as a father, and it is a high calling to be a shepherd of the flock of God. It's a high calling to have anyone under us that we have the blessing to minister to. And he says, look at, he says, exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, no exceptions. Every one of the Thessalonian believers, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the least, the last, and the left out, 
And even, as we will get to in Thessalonians, even the lazy, the least, the last, and the left out, and the lazy. I'm getting psyched up and dialed up and teed up when we get to that passage, but we'll get there when, when we do. Beloved, God uses, again, the gentle care of a mother and the strong, appropriate exercise authority of a father to frame pastoral ministry because there are God-ordained differences between men and women, between mothers and fathers. There are overlaps, to be sure. And there are many examples that we could bring out to give this illustration. I'll bring one. My beloved Margie, when one of our children, when they were young, when they needed to be disciplined, um, and that means spanked, if you, know, you need a key to understand. When they needed to have the rod of discipline lovingly applied, if I was not home, my beloved Margie would do what was necessary. But if I was home, that ministry responsibility was mine. And in the same way that a father or a mother, while there's a behavioral change that is necessary, it's not, it's non, it's not optional, the behavioral change is not the ultimate goal. The heart change is the ultimate goal. And that's the same goal of a shepherd of God. And remember the among you in your midst uh, with the case of the mother back in verse 7 and the kind of flavored illustration I gave of young 12-year-old Jesus being in the temple in the midst of the teachers. Remember what he said, what Luke said? that he was sitting in the midst of the teachers, he was sitting among the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. What a beautiful key to us of what we're supposed to do, certainly mothers, but fathers. You need to be listening to your children, and you need to be asking them questions. And I know they get into certain years, teen years, where it's just kind of radio silent. So you need to do that patiently and consistently. You need to ask questions to get under the hood. Head up, eyes open, tech off. Turn off the electronics. And I'm talking to the fathers here. I'm not talking to the children. That's another application. Head up, eyes open, tech off. And fathers, you support them and you strengthen them. You don't suffocate them. Same thing for mothers, both mothers and fathers. Same thing for shepherds. That's the illustration. And we finish off with the noble goal in verse 12. Look at the text. So that, purpose statement, you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, you might pick up something interesting there. Normally, we see throughout the Old Testament of how God called us. God called you. If you're a believer, if you're trusting Jesus Christ alone by faith alone, God called you out of darkness into life. God called you out of death into eternal life. God called you from the spiritual grave where you were dead, you were a rotting corpse, and he put life where there was no life before. Normally we see this word called in the past tense. This is one of three occasions where he uses it in the present tense. He does it here, chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, and also Galatians 5. And the point here is the effectual call of God on the child of God is without end. It never ceases. There's a continual call from God to a walk that is in a manner worthy of God. Our walk is our pattern of daily life. It's what we say, think, and do. And we could say it this way, holding orthodox doctrine is not a passport to heaven. We must be able to talk the talk. 
I, I love the dynamic of when we have baptism, we have a process with baptisms, we have a process with membership and the interaction around the gospel and the back and forth, I love that. So at the most fundamental level, we certainly must be able to, in at least a simple way, talk the talk. But the shibboleth issue here and throughout the New Testament, even in the Old Testament is, are you walking the walk? Do we walk the walk? And beloved, Dear friend, God is not here urging us to become what we aren't. He's commanding us if we're in Christ. He's commanding us to be what we are. And he does it elsewhere. Ephesians 4, 1, Paul says, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Philippians 1, 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians 1, 10, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Beloved, a godly man or a godly woman, again, these are the shepherds, the men shepherds of Thessalonica speaking to all the Thessalonians. A godly man or a godly woman is a follower of Christ. He or she is on the narrow path. He or she is following the way of salvation. This is in the New Testament. This is in the Old Testament. Enoch walked with God. Job walked with God. Abram walked with God, and the list goes on. Levi walked with God in peace and uprightness. And there's a blessing that comes with this walk. Psalm 128, verse 1. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his way. There is a great blessing to this walk. This is the noble goal of a shepherd. And beloved, Christians living together in fellowship live on the brink of eternity. This is what faithful ministry looks like at all levels. This is the great exhortation, the great encouragement, the great imploring, testifying to it. And understand this, God tells us exactly what to look for in a shepherd. A man who teaches what he wants his people to believe and a man who lives what he wants his people to become. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for the timeless power, the timeless truth of your word. Thank you, Lord God, how you worked in the life of Saul of Tarsus, who was an enemy of the gospel, and you transformed him to become Paul the Apostle. Thank you for the great example of the Thessalonian church. Thank you for our beloved Santan Bible Church, a Philippian church, a Thessalonian church. Lord, help us to excel yet more in all of these. Thank you for the godly men and shepherd that I am surrounded by, that shepherd and minister to my soul, that it's such a joy for me to co-labor with. Help all of us, Lord, to glorify you in all that we do. At whatever level of ministry we may have, may, may we be characterized by caring love, devoted discipline, and the noble purpose. It's for your glory and for your honor, Lord, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.